So now that we're back to John Morales, everybody who's just tuning back in, and we got a nice turnout of people, and people are saying, what an amazing story already, John. So we're going to well, leave this pick up, Frankie. I Clark just want to say, I want to say one thing real quick. I just want to tell everybody, me and Lenny are talking here, like we're just hanging out on the couch, having a conversation. So we kind of uh, get a little bit winded if anybody has any questions about the early days or something they want to chime in uh let us know because we're gonna be lenny's gonna take us through the 80s now <laughs> we're just about ready to get there we're just about ready to get there before we get to the 80s <laughs> everybody wants that 70s bls you know you got to realize something you were playing each and every week you were also teaching us those who are very young at home like myself listening in we will listen to you. So you are, you know, definitely what we call someone who is a mentor in our business. Without even realizing you were mentoring, you were doing it. Um, did you realize playing on how important that was, what you were doing playing on BLS in New York at that time? Did you really appreciate it? You know, um, what it was? I, 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 I knew it was important. I, I mean, I mean, radio is different now, but at the time, BLS was a powerhouse, you know, in the R&B and, and the dance community, which started in the late 70s when Frankie uh, took over the programming there, diversified it. So it, it became a, a much broader appeal. You know, it wasn't just soul funk. He was doing the disco. He was bringing other tunes in. So he was expanding the listenership at the radio station. <clears throat> so for people like myself and people like um, Sergio and T. Scott and all the guys that were uh, coming up in that period, the station, Larry LeVan, you know, that that radio station was starting to cater a little bit to what we were doing. You know, I mean, later, you know, KTU came in, but they were more specific on the sound that they were playing. It covered, a, you know, a wide range of different music. So I realized that the association important because it was a good calling card, you know, at the time. So, I, you know, I, I kind of knew how important, I mean, I mean, the one thing in life that I've always uh, been able to, to do is I've been able to see the possibilities of opportunities that came to me. And I kind of judge my involvement based on, you know, what I can get out of something long-term rather than looking at something in the short term, you know, cause right away, a lot of people, the first thing they say is, well, how much am I going to get paid? You know, mm. you know, you didn't get paid for doing any of that stuff. You know, all that stuff is, is just promotion. You know, you you have to use the opportunities you get as a tool, you know, so, to things that you really want, you know, because sometimes, you know, the road, as you know, the road to get to where you want to go is rough. And most people don't stay the course, you know. And that's the problem, because if you yeah, don't have, we always said that, you and I have always said that. We've always said that if you're going to do this halfway thinking you have a day job and then play around and try to be a full-time guy and ain't going to work. It's, a, it's either you're all, all in or all out. No, this, see, this, this, this business, especially today, with what's 
you know, come to happen with social media and the internet and all that, 24-hour gig, you know, and it's 24 hours a day to, to literally get nowhere, you know, <laughs> because it, it, it's a struggle, you know, even the, the most talented people, you know, it's a matter of how persistent you are, your desire to be, to accomplish something that gets you there. You know, it's funny. It's like last night I was watching something. I've been getting into carpentry, funny enough, you know, and this guy, he was like an ace, ace, like I was watching something on making drawers and he's, uh, he said, takes a lot to be good, but a lot more to be the best. It's true. So, you know, it's like just when you think you're getting somewhere, you haven't gotten anywhere. You know, and this business, the thing, the problem is, is that people aren't willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to pursue that. And and it's sad because a lot of guys that are very, very talented, but they just, they just couldn't hold out long enough to realize, you know, that to, to get to a point where other people their talent. You know, people either they got families, you know, they got to pay their rent. They don't have a job. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll tell you some of my stories. I, I mean, I threw everything to the wind. You know, I made a decision <clears throat> one day uh, when I used to work for the company. I walked into my boss's office. I took my badge off and I threw it on the table and I said, I'm out, you know, because I couldn't work. You know, at the phone company from nine to five, then rush to the studio and be in the studio until six in the morning and then go back. So some something had to get because if you're doing two things at one time. Well, how long? Okay, so wait, so no matter before, if you did, oh, wait, wait, before you said to your boss, he goes, I'm done. How long were you juggling this for before that decision really happened? Probably. Probably about almost a year. Okay, so you were doing it for a year before you made that final final big, because that's a big maneuver to leave a day job like that. That's big. Well, life job. I've had two life jobs when I was young. I worked for the post office and I worked for the post And both, you know, I was just like, I, you know, I'm pursuing something that if you can't, if you can't give something a good shot, then don't waste your time. Then concentrate on what you have. Make the best of what you have. If you're not willing to say, you know what? I want to be in the music business. I, I want to make music as as a life, as a way of life. You know? And because everybody wants to do what people perceive to be glamorous. Right. You know, we do it because we love the music. You know, granted, we do want want to be able to support ourselves with the music, you know, but it doesn't start out like that. I mean, I don't know anyone that started out doing this that got paid when they first started. No. If you did, no. God bless you. Yeah, if you were lucky to get that, it's very rare. Very rare. Very rare. You know, I spent... I, I didn't get my first check for a mix. 
Official. I never official got paid. Check. Official from... check. Official. Official check. Official check. Here we go. My that first didn't official bounce. Wait, check. Wait, that didn't bounce. The first one actually cleared. Oh, wait. Okay. Well, then I can't tell, then I can't tell you about the first one I got there because that <laughs> one, the bank said was no good. Yeah, it's efficient funds. Don't forget, it, was check from, it was a check from Salso. There you go. Come on. First check, the first check that you actually gained an invoice that was official, that you actually were paid, it cleared. 50 bucks. <laughs> 50 bucks for Hold Your Horses. South Choice Remix. South Soul. $50. You know, I missed that. $50. Everyone, you heard that clearly? Let's say it one more time slow. $50 to do that mix. How long did you work on that mix, John? Uh, well, I mean, we mixed it in a day, and then I took a couple of days to edit, you know, because we'd walk away with reels of outtakes and just cut it all now, together. Now, tell everybody this, the, 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 the lateral part of this, how this works. What year was this that you did this? Where, what, what was what it? Year, what year was it? That 1980. 1980. Okay, hang on. How much? Oh, people, no, it's, it's. I, I can tell you. That record's before that. I know that already. Uh, well, listen, I did. It's funny. I have a discography, which, funny enough, let me see. Around 79. The, uh, <laughs> that album came out in 79. 1979. That's right. Everyone, 1979. Well, here we go. December 6th. Yeah, December 6th, 1979. Hey, hold on. First choice, we got a happy love affair. John, give me an idea. At 1979, what was the average take-home pay for somebody at work, let's say, at the bank? Roughly at that time, per week. You know, bank tellers job. We all we all knew those jobs. Guy go reads gas meters, whatever. Average pay. How much you think they would make back in that time? Seventy nine. How much? Three hundred bucks. Three hundred bucks. Right, three hundred bucks. They worked forty hours in the week, got a lunch hour, and the whole deal. Right. How many hours you worked on editing and mixing this record? Uh, Roughly. I think 12 in the studio, probably about 40 hours. Yeah, probably a week's worth. So, right, a week's worth of work to make a record like that for the big check. You got that big check at the end, $50. Right. Wow. Let me see. See what I'm saying, everyone? Think about the labor I'm of love. i to realize that. where. That's labor of love okay. right there, everybody, $50. Uh, not 500. Yeah. In the first three years, here you go, Lenny. In the first three years that I worked at me and Sergio did stuff. Wait. Oh, the first three years that I was doing mixing on, I, that I got paid one time 50 bucks. All the other times I didn't get paid. So more that was more like you were educating yourself because you said you wanted to be at every session. So you pushed your way in and, and did right. it on the job training. So he learned to learn everything. And we be did, did the other, we did a get down Friday night on September 20th, 1982. 
me and Sergio, we got two hundred and fifty dollars. Two fifty. How much for remixes at that so time? Getting? Wasn't, uh many doing work at all. Francois was in house at Prelude, so almost all his stuff was play prelude until I think he left and then he started doing other stuff. So <clears throat> what what other guys were were getting, but you know, uh in the mid eighties most guys were getting fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred bucks. You know, it's not like guys that were getting like fucking thirty grand. No, no, we're not talking. No, we're talking about this is the beginning parts of this whole thing. Because pre, pre to that, before you guys, it was the beginning it was only Tom. It was only Tom. See, but the thing was, <laughs> right? See, I don't know what Tom was getting for his mixes. So that I guess when you end up, if I remember like Tom that. telling me, Tom said he used to have one fee and two points. So it could be anything between three hundred, right. five hundred dollars, but he wanted two points on the record. Lifetime points. So he said, I'll do his flat rate, but give right. me two points. Right? That was the, the problem that I ran into with that was that most of these small independent labels, they could give you 100% of the record. Now, collecting that money was another, that, that was a big, big issue. You know, because these small labels are not going to count. They'll say, okay, we'll give you 100 bucks and we'll give you two points. You know, and you're like, okay, the only time that points really started to work for us was in the mid-80s when we started to doing things like and stuff like that. Where we actually producing, you know, so we're getting points on album that, you know, that did five million, five million. So now you're talking a little bit of cash. Right. You got you know? back end money. They got real back end money to come off. Right. So it's real money. When you're working for because you know you're going to get paid. Right. You know? Right. But when you're working for the mom that's and pop guys, the, you get nothing. <laughs> no, that's why a lot of the guys, you know what? They you, you know what? I'll take the money. Oh, oh you know, somebody asked this. You can know? you clarify what the points mean, John? Because they were saying, what are the what are the points? And thinking like it's credits. I said, no. When they said two points on a record. No, the points. What, what ends up the points ends up being a financial uh, gain. Is somebody hires you to <clears throat> to do a job to remix a record, who have given you a big upfront advance, cash advance. They'll say, "Well, listen, we'll give you five hundred dollars to do the mix, and we'll give you two points. Two points ends up being like." two percentage points of whatever the record sells after they've recouped the money that they've spent on it. Right. And that's another thing that gets negotiated because, you know, sometimes they want to recoup the studio time. You know, there's a lot of stuff that they can lump in there where you'll never make any money. So on top of that, now you have to get an attorney, you know, a music attorney to negotiate these contracts and how these points get accounted to you <clears throat> because they could throw all kind of stuff in there that has nothing to do with you, which you end up being responsible for. You right. know, they want to recoup the advance. They want to recoup, the you know, they want to recoup 
the studio type, you know, I mean, I've I've seen some contracts even now where they want to recoup off of your money stuff other people did. I mean, Lenny, I'm sure you've seen some contracts in your day, you know, where you're like the container charge what? thing always got me. Recoup. What? The container charge phrase is always good. The container. Oh. Like, what's the container? I mean, and then and then they hold money and then back then they would hold money for returns. Escrow money. In case oh, the record come back. Yeah. So it <clears throat> so unless you know, unless you're doing volume, big numbers, it's very difficult. To, to, to get paid. We used to try to do a contract where we got paid from record, which is what you want. You want you want your advance and you want to get paid from record one, which means that nothing gets recouped against your money because you had nothing to do with the recording, especially on remixing, where the stuff's already done. But just adding your your uh, services, you know, your uh, talents to it. So the points basically to minimize their investment up front and pay you based on how it runs. Now, if you're dealing with a legitimate company, you I prefer to take the points because then you're putting your talents on the line and saying, I trust the work that I do enough to say, I know that I'm going to okay. And in a lot of cases, that's work. That's exactly what's happened. You know, as you said, okay, you know, you know, Tom, Tom did a great thing. You know, he said, you know what? Give me a uh, 300 bucks, but I want to, you know, two points on bad luck or the love I lost. How about Disco Inferno? You, know, you string a bunch of these records. Right. It adds up. Yeah. I mean, Disco Inferno, which, which not only was a hit by itself, it was on Saturday Night Fever. You know, I mean, and it appears relations. I mean, I'm sure Lenny knows. I mean, you'll you'll get a royalty check for something idea that your track was on. Yeah. You know, because even when it's sold onto a compilation, license to a compilation, you're not gonna get that same two percent, but it'll be prorated against whatever the deal was. Right. So, you know, and it's like publishing. If you're a writer, you get paid forever. Every time your song gets played somewhere, you know, and gets accounted to, you're going to get a, you know, you'll get something from ASCAP. Right. You know, I haven't done a lot of writing, but every once in a while, you, you'll get like some check for like 20 bucks or 100 bucks, you know, for something you did like 40 years ago that's been all of a sudden is a hit in Timbuktu. Right. And all you need is one mistake to happen where your your music gets used in a movie or a commercial. Oh boy, those sync deals and those. You know, my biggest record, my biggest financial record, it's nothing to do with dance music. Almost, you know, things like Beverly Hills Cop, you, you know, um, you know, which was a movie. You know, ends up getting points on that. It was like. Great. It's, it, you know, it's a worldwide thing. You know, I mixed the records for heart, you know, flicks could kill memes and stuff like that. You know, people just don't know some of the things that people do because, you you know, I was never one prior to now this big social media thing to go out bragging what I did. It's, it's just what I did, you know? So it's, you know, people say, Oh my God, John Ross. I'm like, it's what I do. 
You know, it's like Lenny. You know, we'd be walking down the street. I mean, we're not, uh, we're behind the scene kind of guys, you know. Always was. That's how it so was. that's about the point. That thank you on the points. No, because people are asking, well, they're like, what do you mean by points? But points, no, when we want to let everybody know that that's an important part to the game, you know, that you do get the chance to have a share if you're working with credible labels and it works out in your advantage. Sometimes I know people have done things over the years, and John knows as well. You do things for stepping stones. You take the record on because you know the people involved. You you have a good feeling the record's gonna be a huge hit. And you do it because you know. Your name is right. attached to that. You know, work is coming off the back of that. We've all done that. You know, we all help each other that way. But, you know, luckily enough, one of these records goes into a movie deal. or Like I said, a commercial. Oh, cha-ching, cha-ching. It's like a wow factor. You know, your life really changes if you wrote the record. But, right. but you know, now that that. So that first mix that Eminem did together, Sergio and you, was it a success for Sal Soul? Right. Um, it wasn't a big chart success. I mean, people know the record, you know, uh, it wasn't like it was a big chart. There was no stopping that rocking, you know, instant funk. So it was one of their singles, uh, but it wasn't, I mean, it's not like it went top 10 or anything. So I think our first, let me see what, well, get down Friday night was an early one. Uh, oh, well, for me, after Caught Up, the next one was Barely, barely, barely Breaking Even, Universal Robot Band. Well, there's a lot, you know, Hooked on Your Love. Here we go. Of course. Of course. So I mixed Caught Up, Hooked on Your Love, and uh, Ladybug. And now you become the coach. It's like, you know, it's funny. I was gonna, huh? I was saying that people starting to knock you your door. I said people must be starting to knock at your door at that point. You know, these, these records are being no, played. No, people were, but it wasn't a it wasn't a popular thing. See, this is what it was because you, what what happened back then was you had the labels were just discovering. You know, the clubs were just starting to make enough noise. It was just. The dance music was just starting to get some play on radio. And what you ended up having was that the labels had to convince some of these artists to let them, to let somebody mess with their music. You know, there was a lot of people that didn't want people touching their stuff. So what happening is the first year or two that this was happening, what happened is some of the producers were starting to music as if it was a dance record. So you could buy the pigeon and right away it'd have an intro, it'd have a break. You know, it wouldn't be what a DJ uh, would try to do, but they were trying to do this themselves. You know, because back then in the beginning, the producers would have to pay out of their royalties for you to get paid. <clears throat> so, you know, if, if, you know, if I'm the artist and the label wants to hire Lenny Fontana and pay Lenny five grand for it, that money's going to come out of my pocket, not oh, the sure. label's pocket. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were like, wait a minute, we don't need this guy to make so who's, who is this guy, John Morales? But just, you know, just some 
no, we're going to do it. We'll figure it out. And that's what ended up happening for a while. You know, so you had from but, some artists. And even... But, well, wait, but during that time, you, you were seeing names like Jim Burgess and Jimmy Simpson was mixing too. What was going right. on there? What, what were these people inside the record label? It was Jimmy, Jim Burgess, Jim Burgess, Tom Savarese were independents. Uh, Jimmy Simpson was Valerie's uh, brother. Was actually part of the, the team, so he was doing the mixes and charging on the side. But he was really an integral part. Whole Ashford and Simpson situation, you know. So really didn't count him in that. So you did have Jim Burgess, you had Tom Savarese, you had Tom Moulton, which were the early beginning pioneers. I mean, I kind of am in the outskirts of that group because I just, I started back in 78. So they were, they started in the mid seventies, if I remember right. Right. <clears throat> you know, but the thing about it is even though they're known for starting those early things, they've only got a handful of records that are credited to them. It's not like they did a lot of work. You know, they were just the early and Walter Gibbons. You know, let us not forget. Yes, you know? Walter, may he rest in peace. Yeah, Walter, T. Scott, you know, the early, early uh, DJs. Roy Thode. Roy Thode right. One or two. Yeah, there's a, people playing in New York with, with the ones mixing records. Right. So, but see, but those guys, you can count on one or two hands the amount of records that they actually did. Right. You know, you know, they came, they did what they did, you know, and and many of them, you know, passed away early in life, unfortunately, you know, but they, it just wasn't a known thing. Like now they, every single freaking record's got 10 remixes, <clears throat> you know, you know, back then, you know, it just, it was developing, you know, this whole thing didn't really kick into another gear until like the early eighties, 82, 83, you know, when you started getting people like and Jelly Bean and Shep, you know, and some of those guys, you know, that started when the Mark came is when the club scene started to become relevant, then the music that they're playing started because now the record labels saw that as another financial vehicle. Before that, it was just the independents that were putting out a record here and there. You know, none of the majors jumped in. You know, and then everybody was like, it was all about disco. You know, everybody was doing a disco record. You know, do we credit that um, to Day Night Fever? You know, so the early years was difficult. Huh? Do we credit that to Day Night Fever and the explosion of the movie because of that? I mean, I, I would credit how big it got, partly to Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> You know, anybody that lived in that era knows that it was just a small group of people that I was doing the work. You know, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, had Larry lived, we would have gotten a lot of work. But even in his early days, you know, he worked from specific labels, you know, that added up. You know, he did all the West End stuff. You know, a couple things here for Atlantic. So, but, but it, it, you know, 
the guys didn't hang around long enough to build a big body of me. You know, it's not like like Tom, who's been around for 50 years. Right. You know, or myself, who's been around, you know, and, you know, I mean, I took a break, <clears throat> you know, but it, it's hard, you know, because it's such a competitive um, part of the business. And it's just a, a part of it that until recently wasn't a big necessity, you know, because the labels had to invest, you know, if a label want, you know, if the label wants you to mix a record, they got to make sure that it'd be worth the investment of having you mix it because now they've got to create another release. Right. You know, now they put out, you know, their version of, you know, um, we, you know, we have, you know, the producer's version of Weekend. You know, we've got Lenny's Chocolate Sensation. Why do we need it to get remixed for? You know, what's it going to cost us? You know, a lot of things, you know, we used to say, you know, once it gets to the guy upstairs, we're done. Right. You know, once, once it upstairs. Counters, right. Once it goes you know, upstairs. Yeah. Once it goes upstairs, you know, you're done. You know, the A&R guy's like, yeah, this is great. Yeah, we'll do a remix and we'll get it here. This, we'll do that, blah, blah. And next thing you know, it says, ah, well, what happened? Well, they decided not to do it too much, too much money. You know, so it's there's a lot of things in... I always tell people, you know, the thing is you have to diversify in this industry because even one thing because of the cycle of music, your one thing at some point is going to become yesterday's news, you know, and that's what me and Sergio came up against. And when we hit that wall or when, you know, when we came to the end of the street at that end, we had nothing else to push on <clears throat> so so that yeah you know, that's the thing i tell people i said don't be a one-trick pony you know i mean i do a lot of different things you know I do movie stuff i do commercials you know i do r&b i do soul i do ballads it's i asked the guy one day i says when what record have you mixed that were less than 100 beats per minute People have no answers. Right. Has you ever mixed anything that's less than 120 beats per minute? Yeah, because all people, boom, one, four on the floor, 120. Don't realize that there's some, some dynamics to music, you know, that if you stay in one place all the time, you know, eventually either you're going to get tired of it or they're going to get tired of you. So you need to be able to move, you know, in and out of the curves. So on, on that so, note, on that note, you know, you mentioned, of course, taking a break, but before we get to that point of you taking a break, you and Sergio are high demand remixes from 80 on, I'm going to say 81, 82, 83, 84. From 80, from 81 through 80, 88, 89. Right. 88 is when it slowed down. What happened when dance music and disco kind of started to fall out of favor, hip hop got introduced and became very massive. That's almost like where the end of the road hit. Right around the end of the 80s. 
right. 87, 88. Well, pre to that, I know you mixed, I know you were around some really big records that were going on that were underground, big, big hit records too for us. Like, um, Ain't a Mountain High Enough, you know, for example. I know you're behind that record. I know, I know we've spoken about right. it many times. Or Class Action Weekend. You know, and then we got into the whole freestyling, which is was kind of a regional kind of thing. Did Denise Lopez in the late 80s saying sorry, don't make it right, and things like that. Nancy Martinez tonight for tonight. So um yeah, Margie Joseph, knockout. I mean, there's there's a ton of stuff. But we kind of lived in the underground. You know, the records that nobody really kind of knew, but they knew. You know, we knew about them. You know, they didn't get a lot of radio play, but, you know, always charted and people knew about them. Right. Well, that's... What, you know, well, like I, one guy told me the other day, I was... Go ahead, Len. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. You were saying. Go ahead. You know, I said, sometimes it's like when I look at, you know, the sheet that me and Sergio, you know, it's like it goes to 1990 and there's over 600 songs. <clears throat> you know, you know, we've done a lot of stuff. You know, it's like even Wish, nice and soft, you know. And I never realized that that bass line had sample for so many things. You know, Ronnie Dyson. You know, it's all over your face and things like that. So, I mean, it's good. Conga, new edition. It's the who's who of the 80s. Uh, oh. <laughs> it's the who's who. The 80s. You know, the Temptations, Treat Her Like a Lady, Night Shift, uh, Rhythm of the Night. You know, I mean, you know, when we uh, started doing the stuff for Motown, you know, all that stuff was really successful and did well. You know, Vanity or Vanity Six, as they called. So, so what was so, the backing order for you for work ethic wise? You know, you you now becoming like a machine when you're in that era. What's involved? You go in studio, studio every night. What are you doing? You working out of your own spot? Do you have your own studio at this time, or are you still using a lot know. of rooms? <laughs> in those days. Nobody had their own studio. The only person in in that era of the 80s, and I'm not even sure when he opened up uh, his studio, Francois. Um, God, what was the name? Of his, uh, Axis. I mean, you could. Yeah, Axis. You, you could, I mean, because just the gear. I mean, you look at an SSL console, you know, you look at a, I mean, I'm looking over here at a two-inch machine, you know, it was, uh, an MCI machine, which was, was 250 grand, you know, and then all this stuff you lease to buy, you know, you're looking at a million-dollar console, you know, if and forget about the outboard gear, you know, you'd have to buy it or lease it because you couldn't rent it because the rent for it. I mean, like, when we were first renting, like, you remember, well, you don't remember, but like in the mid eighties, when you get like a, a Lexicon 224 reverb or an AMS two second delay, they charge you like $200 a day for use of the machine. Yeah, I know. I remember you that. Know, so none of us had our own place. You help build places. Like I always tell people, I built that 13th floor at quad that room on lockout uh, on the eighth floor there. 
for a couple of years once we moved out of blank tapes, you know? So, uh, I mean, and, and basically, you know, you learn as a, as you go along, you know, I mean, I relied heavily on the engineers, you know, to uh, set up the sounds and sound right until I felt comfortable enough doing it myself, <clears throat> you know, but there's two sides of that coin, you know, it's, it's good to just sit back and think of the creative aspect of what you're doing, you know, as opposed to me, which is all hands on, you know, is to have to do all the technical stuff. And then as you're building that, you know, have that creative process running through your head and deciding what you want to do. So, um, you know, we, we never owned our own studio and, and most of the guys that had studios, I don't think actually started until the nineties when the whole MIDI stuff and the gear didn't have to be so cost intensive, you know, I mean, nobody was building a studio in the mid eighties, no DJ or mix or anything like that. You know, I don't care who it was, you know, the, the just the cost is just enormous. Right. In those days, it was a lot of money. Unless you know people. I mean, I, no, I don't know anybody. I, I even Jellybean at that time, he was mixing loads of stuff. And I know he was working out of rooms in the city. He wasn't, I don't even think he even had his own spot. He was working out of Sigma. Yep. He's working out of Sigma. The Jellybean was making big money in the mid 80s. He was doing all the commercial stuff, you know. And, you know, it didn't hurt that he was, you know, going out with Madonna for that minute, you know. So, Everything was everything. Yeah, he did a lot of it was just it wasn't cost effective for anybody to own their own place, you know. And he's, you know, the big artists that invested, like um, when Right Track opened on 40th Street, we were one of the first clients there when Frank Filippetti and them. did right track. I mean, Frank Filippetti used to be our engineer for records like Barely Breaking Even. I mean, you know, when you think of what some of these engineers, Bob Clear Mountains and some of these guys, what they aspired to and some of the stuff they were doing in the early 80s, I mean, you know, the uh, Algae Brothers over there at uh, Unique, you know, they were doing like the Shannon Records and all the you know, the little hip hop, like 20 bucks an hour, you know, and all these guys. You look know, at them now. Climbed. I mean, look at uh, Steve Thompson. Just look at Steve. I mean, Steve was a dance guy. I know. You know. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, you know, then he jumps into the whole rock thing and his whole game just got elevated. I mean, I mean, I remember mixing something with Steve Bluey Psalm, I forgot what year it was over at Media Sound, you know, and we're just talking about this thing and just to see where everybody's careers go and the decisions that they make away, you know? Right. And sometimes the lucky so, chances that you get. Who was it going to get? Right. You know, it's all about the, your lucky chances and the decisions you make, you know? I mean, we, me and Sergio had to make a crucial decision and financially we made the wrong one, but musically we stayed with what we wanted to do. 
Right. You know, which was when we first, when we first worked with Debbie, Debbie Gibson was bought as a 16 year old, right. To produce her first album. Now she was just the, just perfect pitch, ace musician, writing her own stuff. I still have all her demos on cassette. At the same time, we were doing all the dance stuff. You know, we did, this is when the emulator and all that stuff in the mid 80s came out with some of the freestyle stuff, the Nancy Martinez, the, the Denise Lopez's, um, TKA, some of those early freestyle <coughs> groups. We had to make a decision. Said, so do we finish? Do we finish mixing Debbie Gibson? Or do we do a couple songs and do the dance stuff, which is really where we want to be? So we end up, and we were working with Fred Zarr a lot. So I just called Fred one day. I said, Fred, listen, do you do you use um, this artist that Atlantic is going to sign? You know, it was like five or six more songs. And he said, yeah, okay, cool. So he worked it out with them and ended up, uh, not only producing the rest of the first album, but the second and third, because him and Debbie ended up getting along perfectly because they both had perfect pitch. They're both excellent musicians, you know. So there was a big financial windfall because the first three albums sold between the three of them probably about 10 million copies. Right. And we were stuck, you know, and we did, you know, For Tonight, which was the number one record and move out and some other songs, you know, we did Lime and stuff like that. So we stayed true to the dance stuff, which we love. So we never really sold out for the finance and climbed into that kind of the celebrity mixing. Right. So, you know, so that's what, but that was our choice. You know, I wanted to, you know, it was always about the music. It wasn't about the money. Right. So instead of working to make money and not be happy, you know, I'm sure both of us decided, you know what, we we want to enjoy what we're doing. We want to have fun. You know, when, when we had our studio sessions, we had a good time. We'd turn it up loud. You know, we'd be dancing in the studio. You know, take mixes. We'd take them down to Larry at the garage. You know, the same was right down the street. And we instantly get some gratification, you know, for what we were doing because that's what we loved. You know, the other stuff, you know, the more commercial stuff was not something that really moved us in any way. You know, so, you know, that, that was the decision that we made and, you know, and it is what it is, you know. Right. So you had the, well, I can understand. You listen, you got to enjoy, you know, for some of us, we have to enjoy what we're working on. To make to be good at it, you know, to make it better. Because if you don't like what you're doing, it's hard to be creative when you're not feeling it. It really is difficult. It's hard to do. listen. And you've been doing this for a long time, like I have, and you have to a certain extent. What motivates you is what excites you. You know, because I can't give you a good product if I'm just doing it as work, as a work product. I mean, I had the opportunity, I've, you know, I was working, um, 
when I went to the UK in 84, I signed with, uh, with Ensign and I was doing all the mixing over there, you know, five star British stuff <clears throat> was doing really great. <clears throat> and in the office was Sinead O'Connor, right? Right. First flight right out of Ireland, you know, to Nigel's office sitting there. And I just, this is this Sinead O'Connor. I want to see if you want, you know, you want to produce herself, you know? And I was like, and I went with, I bought her this microphone. She wanted a red microphone. So we got on the phone, came back, and I just told Nigel, I said, listen, you know, I would love to do it, but it's not the kind of music that I can really absorb in. <clears throat> you know, we were doing London Town. You know, I wanted to do London Town, London Town, Phil Fearman and Galaxy. You know, some of the stuff that we were doing there that was more dance orientated, jazz, funk, soul, you know. So, but, um, you know, those were the, you know, you know, when you work and you do work on stuff that you love to do, you get more out of it. And you, and you can take uh, people not liking your stuff. It's easier for, to accept people not liking your stuff if you've put all your heart into it. But if somebody tells you, you know, Lenny, I didn't like that mix, <laughs> and you're sitting there and you say, well, you know, I just did it to do it, you know, you you can't accept, you know, it's like, it is what it is. You know, for me, it's, every record is personal. But if I like it, I feel good because I know I put 100% to it, and everybody has their own opinion. Until they hear, until they hear it, and they see everybody go crazy over it, and all of a sudden, the, I've seen that happen too. You've mixed the record, you know it works, and it takes that one person to start playing that record, and it blows up, and then everybody wants that sound from you. What you did on that record, and that was something you just felt. It was an artistic thing at the time. It's not something you can recreate, but you know what? They open up their 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 purses to give you money, so you have to kind of try to in some way recreate that feeling again that you did for that particular artist and it goes both ways if you're not feeling the creation part with that artist you can't i personally can't do it i can't do it as a writer producer i can't you can you can you can Cheat your way through it. You know, we call it making it to you break, you know, faking it till you make it. You can fake it, but you don't really believe it. If you don't believe it, how are you going to sell it, you know, to the world? Not even to our money wise. How are you going to sell that? But, you know, the 80s goes on. And I remember you did take a break. I remember when I spoke to you from Tom Moulton's house that day, you called and I asked you where you were and you said you were coming back. Where were you all that time when you took that break? You and Sergio ended and what happened? Well, what <clears throat> me and Sergio ended in more or less in 88. It was what ended up happening was that we were no longer relevant. So our management company, who I won't mention any names, <laughs> Keep them out of they it. Weren't re, we weren't going to re-up our contract. So me and Sergio went on 57th Street at a chock full of nuts in the corner across from Carnegie Hall. And we just sat there and just realized that, you know, this this was the end. 
when when pop and rap started to really dominate what was going on, me and Sergio felt that it was going to be a trend and we were going to wait it out. Dance music is going to keep going. And it didn't. You know? And we didn't have the skill set to be able to shift into something else. And even though I knew people in that scene, it just wasn't something I felt that I could do. So then, along with having get, having gotten sick and developed some cardiac situations, I worked for three more years. I did uh, the Lopez album for A&M, which came out in 91. <clears throat> and, at the, and after we finished the album, Denise decided she wasn't going to support the record. So the label said, well, if you're not going to support the record, we're just going to drop you, and that's the end of it. The rap. So, so after then, you know, after grinding for 15 years, I just thought it, it's just time to take a break, and I just retired. I stayed in the industry, but I started uh, I started working for Steinberg, supporting Cubase and C Lab, and a lot of musical software. You know, so and that happened like in '92, and then I started to get into uh, doing sports memorabilia. See, whenever I shifted into another thing, I just gave a hundred percent. You know, I was working for uh, Sam Ash for a while. You know, doing stuff in all their stores. So and then I just stopped, and I got sick, and I just I wasn't I wasn't feeling that anymore. It just sucked all the juice out of me. You know, just a lot of stuff happened in the 80s outside of the music and just, you know, within the scene and things that were going on. You know, it's just, you know, you drive that car and when it runs out of gas, that, that's can it. You share, it stops. Can you share with us and the viewers in the 80s era, what was the one thing that really left a bad taste in your mouth that you were like, shit, this fucking sucks just like that like something that happened or a great opportunity that was pulled out from out you know um you know what I, I i don't regret anything because you know what every decision you make has a consequence and you know there, i mean there was a there was a lot of things you know coming from the bronx and being hispanic uh you kind of were looked down a little bit by certain people you know there was a whole um it, there was a, a different level. just you know what i put my hard hat on i went i did the best job i could on everything we ever did and everything i ever did and whatever came of it came of it and i just you know do i regret some decisions that i made you know the only thing I would say is that those decisions would be based on financial gain. But then I'm saying, well, if I maybe if I would have done that record, I would have lost my love for, for everything. So, you know, but then I came back, <clears throat> you know, so, I came back and I felt I came back stronger, you know. What was um, the comeback? So give us the Sylvester Stallone. You're coming back. You know, what's the story with the comeback? What What was the decision for you to come back? Truthfully, what made that? What was the... Paul Simpson. 
Okay, Paul Simpson. Paul Simpson. I know who Paul Simpson is. Please Paul tell Simpson. the people who Paul Simpson is. Oh, Mr. Serious Intention. Um, I know Paul for a long time, from the 80s, from the BLS days. <clears throat> and Paul called me one day, or I found Paul. I, I don't know how I found him, but I called him and phoned him. And um, and he was working on a mix, uh, a Marvin Gaye mix, Funky Space Reincarnation. This was 2004. <clears throat> so he said, John, you still got your setup? <clears throat> I said, yeah, it's kicking around there somewhere, you know? He said, I got to do this mix and I don't really have a place to do it, you know, because something happened with his gear. And I think he was moving and just he, he couldn't get it set up with something. And I said, yeah, all right. You know, doesn't matter. So um, so Paul came over one day and we started working on the mix together. <clears throat> <clears throat> and then what happened was that Paul's um, Paul's mom got ill. And he had to go to Florida. So Paul goes to Florida and I end up working and finishing the mix. So I sent it to Paul and Paul sends it to the guy at the label who I did not know at the time. You know, and what ended up happening was that the guy wanted to make some changes, but he I don't think he totally realized that I was doing it. <clears throat> So then when I finally got to talk to the guy, he says, he says, man, there's this one guitar part. I wish I could come and just nudge the fader and this. So I asked him, I said, where do you live? He said, I live in Montclair. I'm like, you're 20 minutes from me. You know, I said, if you want, come on down. So he came to my house. We sat down. He realized that I was right all along and <clears throat> where I had it placed in the mix. We sat and we had dinner and he just looked up at me. He said, you know what? He says, I got a project for you. He said, I want you to mix an album. And it was uh, Marvin Gaye's In Our Lifetime. Right. So I ended up doing a whole album. And from there, it just, it just started, you know, and uh, I started doing stuff for him. And no, wait. Wait, wait, did that A&R person that Paul was working, did he know your history and knew who you were? He knew who I was after he got my name. Oh, he didn't realize it first, right? He, didn't, he still didn't know. No, because, I mean, I, I don't really think that Paul told him. <laughs> that I'm working with John Morales, that you used to work at Eminem and blah, blah, blah. He didn't say all that. engineer. If I know Paul, right. he said my engineer. Everybody, my engineer is John Morales this time, but they're not saying who this engineer is. So paint the picture, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think Paul did it. Uh, no, he didn't do it in a negative way. If you know no, Paul. He no, he didn't no, do it. It's just the way he is, you know? Secretive. So, um, giving. <laughs> right. So that started a relationship between me and the A and R guy at Universal. Because um, I could just imagine, bro, then, John. Wait a minute. I could just imagine when they figured out who the hell you were. 
And everybody, because I said the same thing, where the hell have you been? That's the first question. They, probably get, right. they put the two. Yeah, I, go, I have to go go through. The where have you been? Because I left but, um, when I heard back from you, I was like, where have you been? It's like, wait a minute. There you are. I've been here. I'm not doing I, this. Well, the time, the time we went to, to dinner that one time when you were doing the yeah. thing in the garage. Right. I asked the first question. Where, the first been? Where have you been? Yeah. yeah. No, the first question was when I was at Tom Moulton's house and you called you called in right. and I, on the phone with you and I said, John, where the hell have you been? Oh, I'm just starting to get my shit right. back. Right. I remember. I remember you saying, I'm like, what? Right. What do you mean getting it back? Where have yeah. you been? Everybody's always wondering where the hell these, where everybody goes, you know? Well, we just, uh, you know, we go to regroup, you know? I mean, you know, um, and, um, and then oh. but simultaneously during those first few years, 2004 to 2006, I was getting a lot of calls from the guy at BBE licensing. They wanted to license stuff that i had mixed right dimitri was doing a couple of compilations you know night dubbing and this and that and they wanted the tapes the only good thing about me is that most of all the mixes is that i'm a pack rat so i saved everything so i had all the masters in the garage all the two-track masters so i said oh we want to make want to do this you know let my people go you know we want you know, caught up, and we want this, and I'll be up, got, 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 and then one day, I just mentioned to Jasper Christensen, who I credit, I give a lot of credit to this, who was at BBE, I said, you guys should just do a John Morales compilation, and he was like, you know what? That's a great idea. Said, Let me ask Peter, and next thing you know, Peter called me and said, can you put together a track listing? And I said, all right. And that's where Eminem Volume 1 uh, was born. You know, and, you know, it was a big part of it. Dimitri, because of Dimitri, I came back to DJ. Uh, why is that? Why you know, because because Dimitri? Dimitri? Why because Dimitri? What happened? When Dimitri, Dimitri was doing his night dubbing album, and he was going to have a preview in New York at Submersive. Right. Oh, yeah. So little club. Yep. I remember that. Cool. You want? Right. Down in the basement. So he says, do you want to come and DJ? I started laughing. I said, Dimitri, I said, I haven't DJed in 25 years. You know? He says, oh, you, he said, just come and play. You know, it'll be fine. You know? I didn't have any CDJs. I basically didn't know what they were. I didn't have anything set up. You know, I was just doing my music. I had no intention to DJ, you know? So after a lot of heavy thought, I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, if you know me, I said, I'm going to do it right. So then I started looking for some CDJs and Hector Romero Baby Hector. was selling yeah. his CDJ 1000. Hector Romero from yeah, Death Mix, Hector Romero, Hector Romero, wherever you are. Yeah. <laughs> so he's out there. So I call Hector and I said, listen, I'm interested in the CDJs. So I drove out to Hector's house and picked them up, set them up and started to practice. 
And I mean, I was just a train wreck, you know, just trying to put stuff on CDs and figure everything out. And, you know, I ended up doing it. And then Annie and Francois came that night. And I probably played, unknowingly, I probably played like four hours. And at the end of the night, Danny comes up to me and he says, you know what? He says, the guy hasn't played records in freaking 20, 30 years. He said, you did pretty good, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. So I went home and that kind of stuck in my head. You know, I said, you know what? I said, Danny said, and I kind of enjoyed it. You know, it's like, you know, like when you've been away for a little bit and you come back and you, and you kind of deal a little bit. And it kind of gets inside of you and you're like, you know what? You know, let me let me investigate it happens. So um so I did one or two little things, nothing big, and then Alex from Southport calls me. And I think it was 2009 and says, We're doing a disco thing at Southport Weekender. We'd like for you to come out and play. And I'm like, whoa, all right. I didn't know what I didn't know what anything was. You know? So he says, it's gonna be you. It's, it's gonna be who I've known forever, Martha Wash and Linda Clifford, all people that I knew. So I was like, okay, it can't be too bad. Yeah. <clears throat> so I agreed to do it. I went over to the UK. I was I was nervous. I was like shitting in my pants because didn't realize that this was like the closing finale in the powerhouse room for like 5,000 people. You know, it was like, whoa. And um, <clears throat> made my set. You know, it was okay. I mean, my mixing wasn't as tight as it could have been. You know, but I had fun and people liked the selection. And then we did the closing. It was me. And I didn't know these guys at all. So it was me, Sven, Curry Chandler, Joe Clausel, Francois was there, and uh, my friend Deuce Martinez and a few other DJs. So everybody's together. Right? And I'm playing, and I didn't realize that they were all going to jump in after I finished my set. And Sven comes behind me, and he says, don't worry, I got you. You know? So because he could tell that I was nervous, you know, so and ever since then, it just, you know, here we are, uh, 2009, it's 220, 11, 11 years later, you know, I've, you know, I've put in the work, you know, and, you know, hopefully he's enjoyed all the music all these years and, you know, and I'm, I'm still doing the music. I, I hope to be able to get back on the road. I don't know what's going to happen with all this craziness. But, um, you know, I'm supposed to be in the UK on Boxing Day. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but <clears throat> no. And I don't even, and, and the question is, even with that is, even we, we get vaccinated, when are we going to get vaccinated? And when can we travel internationally again? Because it's still close to us going anywhere right now. So we won't know for a little bit. I, I, I got a call the other day from a guy saying, dude, can you come to Melbourne? You know, we can do gigs now. Melbourne and we'll do another Australian tour. I'm like, 
I'm like, what, are you, are you out of your mind? He says, what do you mean? I'm saying, number Australia and New Zealand don't want anybody in their country. Especially Forget from about Americans, America. Especially anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From the, yeah, right. Come on in. Yeah, you want to play we, some records yeah, to we, thousands of people? We just infected, right. we just infected a pesky American infectious bastards in to fuck everything up. Right. Bring us, bring it in. So even if we wanted to go to a place that was safe, they don't want us <coughs> anywhere. No. You know, and, and I even think, even though everybody's saying, yeah, by next summer, I'm even thinking that next summer could be up in question, depending on what happens. Depends on the you know, vaccination. I mean, even here they're talking. Right. They're, here they're saying um, no vaccinations. Everybody's not going to get vaccinated till next June. Right. If you're lucky. So what the hell does that mean? You know? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. You know, it's a, there's a difference between people vaccinated and this virus being under control. They're not going to five or 10,000 people in a room screaming and jumping like we did two years ago. I don't think it, maybe I'm wrong. Let me give, you, wish a flash. Wrong. Let me give you a news flash. I just read something this morning that down in Tulum, Mexico, they did a festival a month ago, or not even two weeks ago, art right. festival festival with dance music. They have now figured out all the Americans that were down there that came home, who brought back COVID? There's tons, tons right. from that. And how they figured out was not from the art exhibits. It was from the dancing. Everyone close to each other. Right. Everyone. So we've already learned it doesn't work. So I don't Dude, know. Everybody's sweating. Everybody is. It's just. Oh, it's disgusting. I thought, right? Back, back with doing that again. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, and I'm a and I'm a sociable person, you know. So I like to mingle with the people. Right, you know, but then, like, you know, they're telling me, "Oh, you can do the gig. We'll bring you back. Wear your mask, and you can play, and then you can leave." I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I can't get there. I can't even get there. Yeah. First you know? of all, what plane are you taking? That's good. Okay, you can take the plane trip. You'll get to the border. Right. They turn there. Do tell you do a one eighty and go right back on the plane and go home. They're not allowing you in. No, I think you can get it. You can get into the UK if you've had a if you have a test and you quarantine for two weeks. Probably. You know. So who's taking but, it in the UK? Everyone, you know, are who's you gonna? Are you gonna? <laughs> Hold up somewhere in the UK for two weeks, waiting to play one gig. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not doable. It's not possible. It's not going to work. Uh, and he's, uh, I mean, I just talked to my agent. Anyway, we're getting off track here. So, how, how do you want to do this now? Well, is, is there anything anybody it, wants to know? I, I have a question. People want to know is if, if if well, I know the answer, but let's let's have people. Some people have asked us about the ain't a mountain high enough. And the long version, is that you behind it? Or is that Larry LeVan? You know what? That <laughs> They've asked, I've saw it two or three question. times. Two or three times it's been asked on this. Yeah. This I, so I have to ask it now. Right. I mixed Ain't No Mount High Enough. There's been a question about what version was actually released. As I have never definitively the question 
because Larry's not here to say anything about it. So all I want to do say is that if people want to hear you know Mount High enough, they can buy my Eminem one. Eminem mixes volume one. So that's a good answer. You know, because that was, you know, the well, the slim is also that when you talked about things that I regretted, I regretted not fighting early for getting the credit on the records that I mixed that I didn't get credit for, you know, of which I had the tapes here to prove that I did mix them. You know, things like Let's Do It. My never my name never appeared on the record. You know, sweet thing. My never my name never appeared on the record. So nobody knows anything. The conversion you know, record so, we're talking and, about and in the early days the conversion so, record, let's do it, right? Leroy Bergen. Uh -huh. The conversion record, right? Right. Is right. that your all the conversion? Oh, wait. All that, like, so wait, wait, wait. Right. Go to conversion. Right. People say that, that was mastered off a cassette. Why? What was what happened to the orange <laughs> tape? What was no, well, the, the quarter inch, the master was held in hostage by blank tapes. I'll just tell you real quick the story. What happened was Greg sold the record to Sam. There was Sam and Prelude wanted the record. He sold it to, to Mike Weiss, who was at Sam. Oh, Sam Weiss, actually. Sam Weiss, yeah. But but uh, but Mike, uh, what was his name? Oh, God, the A&R guy, shit. Um, I don't think Mike was working. Danny White. Danny no, White. Danny. Right. Right. Danny was doing A&R there at the time. They bought the record. When they went to Blank Tapes to get this, Blank Tapes said that there was an $8,500 bill outstanding. And they would not release the tape until the bill was settled. They refused to pay for Greg's bill. And already got the money, so he wasn't going to pay for it. So the only thing that existed was a cassette that I had taken out of the studio that they used to put the record out. That's why it sounds the way it sounds. Multi-track? Is the multi-track? No, all that stuff got... Dude, don't even get me started. That got thrown out. You know, at Blank Tapes, they had a storage room in the back. I'll tell you the Salso story since they're no longer around. Um, Lou Vetta at Blank Tapes was running the studio. They partnered up with Bob, him and his brother, Richie. They called, uh, oh, God, the Carey brothers. And they said, listen. We need to get these tapes out of here. It's 500 bucks to have them delivered to the office. Kenny said, Ken Carey said, I'm not paying 500 bucks. He said, well, we're going to throw the tapes away. He said, do what you want. So the story goes that all the tapes were put on the curb and they were tossed in the garbage. I heard the same thing. So. I think right. Tom, did Tom go all running down? Tapes, Wait, wait, did Tom go running down and get those tapes? I mean, Tom, did he save them? I think Tom no. them. Who saved them? I did. You got them. Okay, somebody did. I know somebody saved them. I couldn't figure out who it was. 
Okay, you see. Oh no, not those tapes. That's a different. That you're talking about something totally different. There's other tapes. I'm talking about the tape that they, they that they threw away. This is why you don't hear remixes of Love Sensation and and Two Twelve North Twelve and some of these other songs because the tapes don't exist. Right. Right. So, that's why you hear the same mixes over and over and over and you know dreaming and you know it's um just some of the first choice dr love and all those records that just you know they're just rinsed over and over because nobody wants to mix any of the other stuff and they don't have it so and the West End story, you said? I know West End, Mel Sharon, that stuff went to um, Lifebeat, right? Well, Lifebeat sold... Her. See, when the sound... Lifebeat sold uh, the catalog with Salso to Verse Music Group, <clears throat> who rinsed it out, and they sold theirs to MG uh, UK. Sony BMG. So Sony BMG actually owned the South Soul and West End catalogs now. Yeah, I know. So it, 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 it's made its rounds. You know, Verse Music bought the, the companies so that they could try to recoup and chase that money. So, right. And they got a big payoff. When they BMG. got all their money back, they, I know they got big uh, from BM. I think BMG paid them big money for everything for the West End and South Soul. I think they, they, I think they paid like either four or five mil for for the catalog. Yeah, something like that. It was pretty. It was I don't understand why these. Well, I don't understand why they could generate this kind of money when they don't have a lot of assets outside of just the digital singles. Well, they I think have some tapes. But they, I think because they're hoping the samples come in. So they can collect on that, like they had in the nineties. Well, see, Verse Music. That the reason that they bought the catalog was to chase that old money, right? You know, they sued Shep and they they sued the bottle, trying to get some money back. So, any other questions? <laughs> Anybody still here? I, I can't see anything. Oh so. no! I get, got, there's a lot of people here. Are you kidding? I see the people writing stuff behind. The, Michael Gray just walked in. They're all here. Oh. Joe DeMonte mentioned it wasn't Danny Weiss. It was Danny Glass. Danny that, Glass. That, yes. Yeah. And poor Danny getting thrown out of Larry LeVan's booth. <laughs> I know that story, too. See, I'm glad everybody's got a good memory. I don't remember shit, so... For those that know the names, you can place them where they need to be. Danny Glass. So they just I was just there. Yeah, you just was picking up and doing your thing. I think we covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, what? What's the important thing? Mary Sam's daughter. That's right. Mary Sam's is Michael Weiss's brother-in-law. What are you doing now during COVID? Because I know you went through. I know you've been building your body back up, getting strong again, making yourself ready for contending to box again for this game. Where are you at now in your life? Where are we going? What are you going to do? I don't know. Well, I'm fixing. I did, you know, I was, I was fortunate to, I did the uh, Batman, the tra the trailer for the new Batman, which was really exciting to do. 
So that was good. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm mixing. I'm doing what I do. You know, I'm doing James Brown, Marvin Gaye. Um, you know, I'm doing catalog stuff, advertising. I finished, I have two albums going to come out next year. Good for you. I can't really speak on them yet, you know. I'm not going to ask to see them, John. So, I'm not going to yeah, ask. Those are... I'm not going to ask. He showed it to me. He showed it to me, but he said to me, he said to me, I'm not showing anybody. Okay, so don't show nobody. But, John, reach behind you and pull that shirt forward. That shirt you got hanging. Grab that because I want you to bring it forward. Show everybody. I want you to do me a favor. John wants to know how many people are, are here. Bother him for the gosh damn shirt. Look at that awesome shirt, Eminem Productions, John Morales. Send him a message when you get off this line. And also, while you're at it, Christmas and Hanukkah this week. Happy Hanukkah to all my Jewish friends. We got some True House Story shirts and hats. Thank God House Music is back. We may make one. Thank God Disco is back. Current Power stuff. Thank you for buying all oh, of Power. Yep, Karn Powell. And John, thank you for your... John did a fabulous remix for us, too, on the D-Train record. May I thank him on the air for that as well. John, you are amazing. I don't know if... Finally, I get a thank you. I never got to... As a matter of fact, Lenny, you know, the funny thing about that record was you guys put it out and didn't know about it. Yeah, it was like, we held no. Oh, what happened was we held it back and held it back, and then your mix brought it back to a fresh, whole new, fresh approach. He's like, "There it is." I thanking him right now. Thank you, John Morales. Um, let me see uh, if you know, we, you, know, you know, I love you. Any anything else before? Because uh, I can't really oh, see. So Tom, Tom says, "How many? How many pairs of trainers does John own?" <laughs> Oh shit, we're on that. Oh right, tell them I'm I'm, I'm reducing. Uh, Why you have a I probably have pair? about fifty. About fifty pair. John Morales has fifty probably pairs of sneakers. Check this out. We're we're liquidating. Find them on eBay one day. Why are you really get desperate? No. No, you know, you know what happened is um well i think with the code i used to wear them but i realized a couple of months back i was looking through them that i had like about 18 pair that were new and unworn so um yeah i mean a lot of my friends like kenny kenny dope and stuff a lot of people you know did the whole sneaker thing you know the sneaker head thing and then kind of uh got out of it so yeah i know Oh, here's a question for you, Papa. Alvaro, how do you find social media? Helpful or hurtful, John? Question mark. Necessary. Well, see, the thing is, I was never really, I always did the music for the music. <clears throat> the problem is that nowadays you have to be a slave to the social media you know, social media makes people more than what they are. You know, I was never comfortable with being somebody who's out. And I always, all I get from labels and my agency and stuff is you got to be more active in social media. You know, it's all about the likes. It's all about the friends. It's all about that. And it adds up. 
you know, and, you know, the thing that I'm most resentful for that, that is something that you asked me before is people that have gotten somewhere who don't deserve to be where they're at, you know, but because they've managed to have a good social media profile, you know, they've elevated themselves way above where I think they should be. So, you know, that's one thing that I feel, you know, it's, it's like it hard, don't have time to go up. You know, it's like you got people that are famous that have never done anything. You know, they played like two gigs, you know, one of those uh, artists, you know, it's like somebody and, and it's a sad fact that you can walk into a gig where who's unknown. He'll play a record. He'll play record A. And people say, oh, I can't believe he did that, you know? Terrible. Lenny will come on three hours later, play the same record, and the place explodes. So it wasn't about the record. It was, you know? True, I've heard that before. So, it's how you present I mean, it. It's true. It's very true when you said that. I've been told that many times. When you play it, it's different. I don't know what I'm doing different, but it's different. I don't. Right. Oh, John played it. It's because John played no, it. No, not because oh. you. <laughs> right. No, it, it, listen, we've been in enough. Like, a DJ throws out some tune and you're like, what? And it like, erupts and you're like, man, if I play that record, this ain't going to happen. You know, and I'm talking about big superstar DJs that just no matter what they play, you know, um, the people will react to it to play the same record, even like us. You know, we could play a record that we feel is really good. You know, we'll just kind of like, oh, he's selling out. I said, no, I'm not selling out. I'm playing what I wanted to play. You know, that's right. Same thing is perception, you know. I mean, I do the social media because I have to, you know, people who know me know that I engage with everybody. I'm a friendly person. I'm sociable. I'll talk to anybody. Lenny will tell you, I'm 67 for a reason because I could talk for hours. We could have a conversation all day long about music and things about it. So anybody that has any questions, Welcome to send me a private message and I'll be happy to answer it for you. You know, for all those that may have any questions left now, forever hold your peace. You know, Lenny's got things to do. No, I'm very happy. We got uh, you finally on here. Are you kidding? Come on, dude. A lot of people checked in. Junior Sanchez. Everybody's checking in. Let me tell you something, Mr. Morales. There'll be 24,000 reach on this for sure. I got news for you. This goes a far, far reaches than more than people that we realize are not. We have no idea who's watching this that are watching it. It's incredible. But, you know. Yeah, I know. But but our conversations are more just like, you know, just we're just chit-chatting, you know. No, we're not really talking private, private stuff because we don't choose to. We're keeping it also very informative as well. And I respect everyone's privacy. These things that I do know about each other, we don't like to repeat. 
that we talk about quietly, but it is true. There's things that happen that we have to acknowledge. We have to accept. We don't agree with it, but we accept it we, and go on. And people love right. to talk. I'll, before everybody leaves, I'll tell them one, one dissertation that I gave to this business. In the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, when I wasn't doing well, and I mentioned this to Lenny, I was living in Philadelphia. I couldn't pay for my electricity, my electric, my hot water, my rent was due. I was getting kicked out of my house. I still believed in my ability to be able to make this work for myself. And that's the thing that I always tell people is, if you believe that something is your calling, whether it's music or whether it's acting or whether it's a carpentry or building something, you know, just have faith that your abilities will take you to the end, you know, because the last thing you want to do is, and I tell this people, you don't want to be too old to be able to try something. You know, it's like people, listen, you're young. You're in your 30s, you know, you're in your early 40s. You know, when you're 60 and going to 70, it's too late to change your life. You know, not that you can't, but, you know, your body, and I can detest, attest to this, is just not capable of doing some of those things. So if you really want to go for something and especially you can't do anything, focus and just concentrate, learn, learn to trade. You know, if you want to, being a mixer, you want to remix, you learn a little bit about the craft, the engineering part of it, about it, the technical aspects of what are required and how things are supposed to sound or where they're supposed to, you know, sit in the spectrum. You know, everything now is sounding uh, mono because everybody's using like these two bar samples that are all predetermined. So you can't do anything. So that's why everything sounds the same. It's like five minutes of the same two bar loop. You know, with a couple of things over the top. They took a couple samples with somebody, which is a whole nother segment that we can do, you know? So uh, what's happening today? Everybody's just taking everybody's music and doing what they want, you know? You know, they'll take Lenny's Chocolate Sensation. They'll call it something and they'll call it oh, yeah. Sensei Chocolate <laughs> you know, by, by Joe Blow. And you're like, and you're like, this dude took my fucking record, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he took my record and just renamed it and put it out, you know. So, but that's a whole nother subject. I just want to thank Lenny for having me. Oh, we want to thank uh, you too. on this show. Thank you, John. You are a and uh, maybe somewhere down the road we'll come back and we'll talk about some other stuff, you know. I want to just or maybe I'll do my up. own show. You know? John Morales is a true superstar DJ and remixer before it was even called the superstar DJ remixer. Remember that, everybody. I said that. Let Lenny repeat that one more time. Before the Superstar DJ Remixer, John was there at the Superstar DJ Remixer with no camera and no phone and no smartphone. It was no such thing. It wasn't even a beeper yet. He had to try to find a phone to get to to make a call to get, not even a fax machine. So just take that and bear that in mind. Okay. That's huge. And I could have kept him on here another hour. But you know what? John was worried about, did he have enough to fill two hours? He's got enough to fill 20 hours with information. 
Uh, God bless John and your family. And Feliz Navidad, Merry Christmas, and you know, and we wish you all part, the best. Part, part two coming in twenty. Part two coming to uh, two. Part two, yeah, I know when the album comes out. I know. <laughs> <laughs>